Turn with me in your Bibles once again to Colossians chapter 3. Focus today is on verses 12 through 14. We are in the midst of a Christ-centered chapter found in the middle of a Christ-centered book. And unfortunately, due to time constraints when preaching through a chapter like Colossians 3, you have to take it in portions. There's so much in each verse, but that uh, runs the risk of forgetting that the rooting of all these things that we're being told to do or put on is Christ and the power of Christ, the position of Christ. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, that our life is hidden in Christ, that Christ is our life, that we are dead to self and alive to Christ. I say this because as you go through a passage like today and what we are to put on, it would be easy for us to get a bunch of do's, you know, go do this, go put this on and forget the very strength, the very way it is possible is because of what Christ has done in a finished capacity, then applied to us so that when God looks at us, he sees this finished in us because of our union with Christ. So therefore, we now respond to this grace of God by making making it actual in our practice. So please remember that as we consider again uh, what it means to put on righteousness, to put on Christ, as it were. Hear God's word, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and its sufficiency and how it uh, speaks to every possible aspect of our lives. I pray that we would be changed once again today as we consider what has been done for us in Christ and how we should then respond, react, live. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your great grace. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In studying the previous verses, I recalled uh, the picture of the newly resurrected Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus had been dead four days. His body would have been well on the way to decay. The grave clothes that wrapped around Lazarus's body had to be putrid and damp with the stink of decay. When Lazarus was resurrected, regenerated, as it were, we can assume that his grave clothes remained soiled and stained. Jesus says to those who are watching, unbind him, take that off of him. The picture we have of the newly born again Lazarus is him pulling off or struggling out of the grave clothes and others helping to take those nasty grave clothes off. And I compare that process uh, as an illustration, not as some hidden meeting about Lazarus, but just as an illustration that's vivid to those of you who've grown up in the church and thought of that story, uh, to remind us or give us a picture of what our Christian life is like. We've been born again, given new life. Uh, We still on the outside, though, have the trappings of the old self. And we have to strive with God's grace to take off those grave clothes so that our new life shows forth from that which is outside on us, encumbering us. It's a dirty but necessary duty for the believer. In the verses we studied last week, we saw how we had to put to death sensual sin and put away those relational or community sins. And then I left with 
telling us that putting on would mean essentially doing the opposite, but doing what Christ would do. And that's where Paul picks up today, verses 12 through 14. Because we are dead to self and alive to Christ, we're God's chosen people. That's what it means to be alive to Christ. We are putting off the old and putting on the new. Now, the text we're studying describes with vivid terms what we should be putting on. Look at verse 12, though, so that we can see the rooting or the power we have to put them on. It says in verse 12, put on then, notice this important phrase, two phrases, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and so on. Now, before outlining what we are to put on, Paul refers to an empowering truth. You, brother, you, sister, who trust in Christ alone for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, you are one of God's chosen ones. The evidence that you are chosen by God is the fact that you trust in him. It's not that you trusted in him and became chosen. It's that you are his chosen one, and the outworking of his choice, his elective hand upon you, is trust in him. You are chosen one. How do you know this? Do you trust Christ? if you do that is his hand of choice upon you that you would trust him chosen one what does this mean this means that you are holy and beloved you may say as i say i'm not holy you'd be right but remember who is our life hidden with where have we just come in colossians 3 our life is christ so that's why god can say with complete accuracy that you are holy and beloved Because he sees you in union with Christ. He sees you no other way if you're his chosen one. So as you stand before him in all the sins that you have and all the outward grave clothes that you are so aware of, he sees you as holy and beloved, and it's utterly because of his son. And the finished work of his son applied to you and now real because you are in union with him. So it is totally accurate for God to say to you, his chosen one, that you are holy and beloved. And it's on that basis, it's it's those simple phrases that fuel your ability, it's God's ability, to work in you the putting on of the new. Putting off the old, and then as you're putting off the old, you're putting on the new. So let's remember where we are and where we have come from. The best way I can uh, illustrate this comes from uh, what I learned when we had our first child. Before that time, uh, we were married six years, and I would serve in the nursery at the churches that I was, before I became a pastor and was here instead of uh, in a place where I could serve in the nursery, and I'll tell you what, I, I love playing with the kids, but I could not stand the diaper smell. Couldn't stand it. I mean, honestly, I have a strong stomach, and it got me sick sometimes. I remember going and looking for moms whenever I knew one of the kids that needed a diaper change. I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Well, it all changed when I had my first child. It's not that the stink was great. It's that I love my child, and there is just something different about it. I can only say it as a parent. Even to this day, after having been through three kids with diapers, I still don't really enjoy other kids' diapers. But when my little child came to me with a stinky diaper, I didn't think twice about hugging them, especially when they don't care about their diaper. They just put their hands up to you, and you just hug them. Now, you don't let them stay in the stink, do you? You go change them. But you love them, despite the stink. They're your child. That is exactly how God looks at us, with our old stinky grave clothes on. He embraces us. He hugs us because we are his children. But he doesn't let us stay in that. He helps us to take that off and put on something new. That's the picture that we're talking about here. I say this because I don't want anyone to walk out here thinking, boy, i got to put this stuff on or God won't love me. No. 
He loves you, therefore you can put this stuff on. And here's what we are to put on. First, look at the text in verse 12. Put on, it's God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Several things that we are to put on through Christ. First, compassion. Put on compassion. Literally, the word in the Greek means the bowels of sympathy or mercy. You may have heard that antiquity that one's heart really was translated as their bowels. Uh, that's, how, that's what it used to mean, the seat of our passions or compassion or our emotions. We don't use that anymore because it makes no sense. But I want you to think about how literal this is. When you see something that moves you, especially the hardship of someone else, do you ever get a feeling in your gut? Your stomach turns? This is where it comes from. The seat of our, that's really what's affected more than our heart. Now, we can get a flutter in our heart and so forth, but for the most part, it's your stomach that reacts to something you see. That's why the literal word here for compassion is talking about the bowels of sympathy or mercy. Uh, The ancients, uh, or we've even heard the phrase, I've got a gut feeling. Here, compassion means to have a heart of pity. It's a sense of sympathy or empathy with someone else because of the hardship they're going through. And empathy is a good word for it because if we look at fallen humanity, there's nothing that someone else might go through that you yourself might also go through. So compassion comes out of an empathy or a sympathy for where someone is. We have to put this on. It's not something that comes natural to us. We have to put this on in Christ. We're also to put on kindness. Kindness is an action that reveals compassion, uh, an action that arises out of a sense of sympathy. Kindness comes forth from compassion. Compassion is the sense you get when you see something that's hard or difficult or troublesome, uh, but the action that comes out of it would be then kindness. Jesus was moved with compassion, but then he fed the masses. He was moved with compassion, but he healed them. Uh, So the kind act comes out of compassion. So you see how these build on one another. As we're putting off anger, malice, slander, we're putting on compassion, kindness. You see how replacing those old things help to guard against those old things coming back. We also are to put on humility. This is the hardest one. It's one of those things where you you pray to God for it, but you can't ever thank him that you have it. Right? Having a humble opinion of oneself is what humility means. It's a deep sense of one's moral littleness. It's It's a lowliness of mind. John Stott rightly calls humility the rarest and fairest of all Christian virtues. Why does he say this? Well, uh, being, it's probably the chief Christian virtue, if you will, because it's the exact opposite of the worst of sins. It leads us into so many of our problems, pride. So in this sense, Stott has a very good point. We are to put on humility. It doesn't come up from within. We have to put it on. Uh, you'll hear people talk as though uh, people are really good, uh, really inside. Just, just be yourself. Or people are generally very kind. They're not. That is not part of our nature. We have to put this on. And we can only do so in Christ. We're to put on humility, to think humbly of ourselves. I love what the Apostle Paul says as he tells us to regard others as better than ourselves. That's the real key to humility. Always think of the other person, no matter what their lot in life, their age, their situation. What Think of them as more important. Paul is great at uh, putting into words this concept. In 1 Corinthians he says, I am the least of all the apostles. I mean, who would think that of the one who wrote 13 books in the New Testament? I'm the least 
of all the apostles. He says also in Ephesians, I am the very least of all the saints. Not only the apostles, as he looks at Christianity and he looks at the church, he thinks to himself, I'm the least of all the saints. And then in 1 Timothy, talking to a fellow pastor, he says, I am the chief of sinners. This manifests a concept or an understanding, a perspective of humility. It's not the kind of humility that is a martyr complex where you want everybody to look at how humble I am, but rather just a, a realization of how humble I ought to be before God. And then it, in the case of Paul, certainly is used to fuel his service of God. And by the way, at this point, we've said to put on compassion, put on kindness, put on humility. Do you see how putting on these things, once again, helps us in the putting off of other things? Remember back to verse 8 and 9. Now you must put them all the way, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. If we put off anger, malice, and slander, put on compassion, kindness, meekness, and patience, you see that they cannot coexist. They're going to fight each other. And with God's grace, putting on the new starts to take more of a hold. Put on meekness. Meekness. There's a concept. There's a, an attribute or an action, if you will. Meekness basically means gentleness. It doesn't mean weakness. It means meekness. Someone has rightly observed that meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. It's real strength. But it does not have to display itself or show off how strong it is. J.I. Packer said, Meekness for a child of God means accepting uncomplainingly what comes, knowing that it comes from the hand of God who orders all things. What he sends we accept in faith, even if it hurts, knowing that it is for ours and others good. Put on meekness. It also says put on patience and forbearance literally patience is long suffering the enduring of another's uh, one way of putting it enduring another person's exasperating conduct without flying into a rage it's a slowness in avenging wrongs it's holding back restraining yourself from becoming upset or speaking sharply or shrilly to someone could be your own husband your own wife Usually that's the case where our lack of patience shows forth as the person or people who are closest to us. This is where we see Christ's work in us. But also it has to do with just dealing with each other, doesn't it? You know, not everybody is exactly wired the same way and will compliment one another and get along all the time. And so patience and forbearance has to do uh, with dealing with difficult and exasperating characters. You may be that to someone else. Forbearance means to bear with one another. That's exactly what it means, to bear with one another. It's similar to long-suffering, but it's more on the, on the positive side. Literally, it's to uphold and to support someone. Not only to restrain yourself, but to support others, encourage them. And you see how this runs exactly against the things we're putting off. So we put on patience and forbearance, but we also... And very importantly, put on forgiveness. I say importantly because you can see how a greater explanation is given in verse 13 to this action that we are to put on. Forgiveness. Put on forgiveness. Forgiveness is not being offended and just ignoring or letting it go. That's not forgiveness. We sometimes get that idea. When people say, I forgive, 
I remember, I remember several different things that have happened over time where religious leaders, something would happen to them. I remember when the Pope was shot when I was a child, and I remember him forgiving the guy before the guy ever asked for forgiveness. He just said, I forgive. Well, biblically speaking, this is not a possibility. Now, you have to let some things go that you can never get complete closure on in this life. But forgiveness is something that happens when an offending party commits a sin, and then either you go to them and point that sin out and they confess it, or they, God convicts them on their own and they confess it and come asking you for forgiveness. The point here is grant forgiveness when that happens. Be forgiving. That's what it means. It doesn't mean just forget what happened that was wrong. That will never help a community. That's why it even says, look in verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. It doesn't say it's wrong to have a complaint against another. It's not sinful if it's a legitimate complaint based on a sin committed. And so forgiveness has to do with rightly handling when we sin against each other, not if we sin against each other. And so a forgiving community, putting on forgiveness, is putting on Christ for sure. Forgiveness is exercised or granted. When a sin has been committed, there is confession and the seeking of forgiveness, and we then grant forgiveness. This has been one of the most difficult things to try to teach, uh, to practice myself and then teach my children. Instead of just uh, harming someone and saying sorry, as though you are now covered and walking off, there's, absolutely, there's not one biblical example of that, of saying sorry. There's not. We do it all the time because it makes us feel better we walk away. But what we're supposed to do is seek forgiveness. If I have committed, I need your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And then what this text is speaking of on the other side is grant, be people who grant forgiveness when it is sought after. Be givers of forgiveness. Forgiveness is so important to our community and to the life and the development and health of us as a body. We're called to forgive. Forgiveness means that we don't tell other people about it when the matter is forgiven. We don't gossip about it to others. We consider the matter resolved. The importance of it is so clear when verse 13, unlike the other actions, spends time developing. The model for our forgiveness, ultimately it says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The model of our forgiveness is God through Christ forgiving us. And honestly, a person who cannot or will not forgive has very likely not been forgiven of their own sins. If they cannot practice forgiveness of others, this is a huge indicator as to whether they really have grasped the gospel. It's that important. Holding on to bitterness and grudges shows that we are not clearly understanding the kind of grudge God could hold upon against us, but chose not to in Christ. So forgiveness, the ability to give forgiveness, even as it's a struggle as we grow in Christ, is a strong evidence that you have been forgiven yourself. Our sins are forgiven. Once they're forgiven, we must forgive others. We often think of the obligation of the offender. He or she must seek forgiveness. But here, here we have the obligation of the one who has been offended to forgive. It's a great poison to a community. When a person, when people refuse to forgive, they become calloused and bitter. Maybe in your family life you relate with this. Everyone has, as I've mentioned before, dysfunctional families. And as you look at your interaction, uh, and especially if you have unbelievers in your family, and you'll see how it becomes almost uh, some kind of badge of honor to never forget something that someone did in the family at some point. 
And it's like every time you get together, you get a kind of that feeling in your stomach because you know it's going to come up again. Good old aunt, whatever her name, is going to bring it up again. It's, she's never going to let it go. And so in the church, we have to be very, very careful that we don't resemble that kind of family. We're to be forgiven. Put on forgiveness. But what does it say that we're to put on above all else? Above all else, put on love, verse 14, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In this illustration of putting on and putting off, uh, we have a garment that we put on and we tie a belt around it, if you will, so that it binds it all together. And what Paul says here is above all else, put on love. And the word here is agape, which means the highest of goodwill and benevolence towards one another. So if we would put that on, it's as though these other things would fall into place. Compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, forbearance, forgiveness. All of it is bound together by love. When we love others more than we love ourselves, when we love others as God has ex- given us the example of great love, the greatest love, then all these other things fall really into their rightful place. In a way, practicing love includes all of these traits, doesn't it? Putting on love will fuel compassion. It fuels kindness, fuels humility and meekness and patience, forgiveness. Because we put on all these other things. Love serves then as a bind. It binds all the rest together. You know, putting on these things is so uh, intrinsic. It's so essential for the ongoing, not only a Christian life, but your peace, your joy, our community. And when I think of where would I find these traits perfectly exhibited, I don't think we have to look far, do we? The very one, the very one who gives us our righteousness that causes God to look upon us and say we're holy and beloved is the ultimate example of all these things. And he does these things not just to be an example to us, but to actually provide the righteousness that we have imputed to us by himself, by God, through the work of Christ. We're dead to self in those sinful actions and attitudes we are told to put to death and put off. We can now do so in Christ. I want you to think of each of these for a moment and then picture with me Jesus. Think of Jesus and compassion for a moment. Has there ever been one more filled with compassion? I remember Matthew's description of Jesus, uh, Jesus speaking uh, when he sees the masses. Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When I think of Jesus and I think of compassion, I think about how when he went ashore, it says again in Matthew, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When I think of compassion, I think of Jesus saying in the book of Mark, Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. When I think of compassion, I think of Jesus. I think later in the book of Luke, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Let us put on compassion as Christ is compassion himself. Think of Jesus and kindness for a moment. Kindness is acting on compassion. I picture Jesus with compassion on the hungry crowds feeding them. I picture Jesus healing the lame, 
giving sight to the blind. He didn't just see and have compassion. He then also acted to help them. I see him on the cross in the most wonderful act of kindness ever, I think, in Jesus' life. When he on the cross, at the height of all human suffering, more than any human being has ever suffered, not just physically but spiritually, and he looks down and he sees his own mother. And he thinks of his mother at that moment. And he looks to John, one of his favorite and best friends, and says to John, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. In other words, in the midst of all that he was going through, his kindness reached out to his weeping, grieving mother so that she would be taken care of when he was gone. Let us put on kindness. I think of humility and I think of Jesus. I picture baby Jesus born just as we have come through this season uh, in a feeding trough that is for slobbering animals. Talk about humility. No fanfare, no recognition, no comfort. I picture the Lord Jesus in humility, the creator of heaven and earth, kneeling at the feet of his disciples to wash their stinking feet. An awesome display of humility. Bigger and even better than this example is the words of Paul when he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what that means is to be hoarded, to, to be lived out all the time as deity uh, in the sense of his full glory. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John Flavel said it well. They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Put on humility. So our Lord Jesus displays so beautifully in his own life and provides us that very righteousness that he earns, that he shows. Think of Jesus and meekness. If meekness is strength under control, which I think it is, I think of Jesus standing in the presence of the Sanhedrin as they conduct a mock trial, insulting and injuring him while he's there. Jesus meekly endures the disrespect without striking them all. If meekness means you do not show off how strong you are, I think that Jesus standing in the presence of Pilate, who thought he was the most powerful governor in all of Judea, when in fact the shackled, battered Christ is actually the ruler of the whole world, the whole universe, and he stood there and only answered as he needed to answer. Jesus did not engage in a petty argument with this pompous man, but rather... He endured Pilate's examination. That's meekness. Perhaps in an even greater show of meekness. When you analyze the Passion Week and all that he went through, was him in the presence of that flamboyant mocker of God, King Herod, not even a real Jew himself, calling himself the King of the Jews, who treated our Lord like some kind of circus act in front of his, uh, his court. Yet, Jesus took the abuse. He answered quietly when he chose to, and he did this rather than call down fire to strike them all. That's meekness. That's our Lord. I have a little placard that's on uh, an important spot on my desk that I always see. It's Augustine's prayer, Lord, deliver me from the lust to vindicate myself. That's meekness. Think of Jesus in patience. Just look at the patience he had with the disciples for a moment. After all this time with the disciples... All this time of mentoring and discipling them, they argue about who will sit closest to him when he is made king, and he knows the argument's going on. Talk about frustrating dealing with these guys. How about Jesus' patience with Peter on multiple occasions? Peter often spoke too soon. 
often acted rashly, often proved to be weak at key moments. Did Jesus ever cast off Peter? No. Time and time again, he restores Peter. Peter brings us hope. In Peter, we see the boundless grace of restoring power available to us by the grace of God. There's no one who's failed as many times, at least in holy writ, than Peter. Yet God does not turn away from him. He's restored. Jesus shows us this kind of patience and forbearance we ought to also show. And of course, think of Jesus and think of forgiveness if you struggle with forgiving that person who has harmed you or offended you. We are to forgive, the text tells us, because we have been forgiven by God. There is no shortage of example of this. Think in the Old Testament, full of grace, the Old Testament. Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 53, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Micah 7, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. In Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 7 through 7, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Never has there been one more forgiving than God. Let us also then put on forgiveness. And finally, think of Jesus and think of love. Better yet, think of Jesus and you are thinking of love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Think of Jesus, and you're thinking of love. In Ephesians 2, we are told, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see how Christ is love? Do you see how God loves us in Christ? Let us then put on love. And as he has raised us and has seated us with his son, let's put off that old stuff and let's put on the new. Because we are dead to ourselves now, we are alive to Christ, God's chosen people. We're putting off the old and putting on the new. And we can because of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for such clear instruction and such clear empowerment for these things. We are not left in despair to think that we have to conjure up some kind of works within ourselves, but rather we are motivated and empowered and encouraged, propelled unto newness because of what Jesus has already accomplished. 
pray, Lord, now as we consider the week ahead of us, uh, there are situations that we will be going into this week that will require compassion. Lord, give us compassion. We will need kindness to flow from that compassion. Help us to not just feel something, but act upon it. Do something. Be kind in that way. Lord, certainly we will be called to be patient. Others will have to be patient with us. Lord, I pray that you would grant this. Pray that we would, in fact, put off that old anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying, and put on this kindness, patience, humility, Lord. Help us to count others as better than ourselves. Lord, in this week, help us to specifically right now think of how we will have opportunity to live these things out, to put these things on. And Lord, ultimately, help us to put on love. Help us to exemplify what the Lord God you have done through your Son. Help us to exemplify this in our relationships this week, our actions, our activities. And Lord, in so doing, I pray that all glory would go to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.